Hello, Pasi. Hey, Ramon. How are you doing? I'm good. Welcome to Strickland Type, episode 8. Cool, yeah. Uh, we want to continue where we left off last time with the app workflow for big applications. But before we get there, we want to do a bit of follow-up to last time and then also briefly talk about the Apple event that happened uh, just yesterday, so yep. based on our recording here. But um, I'll make sure to add some timestamps to the show notes. If you don't care about Apple at all, you can just skip right ahead to um, the meat and potatoes of the episode. Fantastic. So yeah, a um, bit of follow-up. Uh, I wanted to, for those of you that actually follow my ad- followed my advice and installed uh, this open-source Hangouts client called Yak Yak, um, there's been some unfortunate news and... It is not working, so new new users trying to log in or anyone that changed their passwords and had to re-log in or re-authenticate. Uh, Google has changed something in the OAuth mechanism and apparently all clients that are using the OAuth mechanism, unofficially using the mechanism, are no longer working. Um, hopefully it will be resolved or maybe Google is enforcing some kind of stricter rules on the authentication mechanisms is that because you use some sort of private api that you couldn't use if you just went through the normal uh i think workflow i don't know i think it was trying to log in as a whole new browser instead of um instead of as a an application right so when, when you use it you get the notification like um this browser this mac os uh, safari whatever electron electron identifies itself as um as signed in like yeah same i think it's similar to when you sign into chrome you get a similar notification oh okay so yeah, yeah but yeah I, i'm not I, I don't know many details on it so just heads up it's not that the app is that crap it's just something changed and it's no longer working thanks everyone that gave me their heads up uh about this because it keeps working for me <laughs> um so yeah, I think that's all the follow-up we have for the for today's episode, isn't it? Yeah. So last night there was another event in somewhere in California hosted by Apple. And I'm pretty sure you have some thoughts on this, don't you? Yeah, well, for those of you that don't know, it was a Apple special event. I don't know why Pass is so reluctant to give <laughs> <laughs> concrete names about uh, the thing. Um, so yeah, uh, Apple presented uh, new products uh Amongst them, uh, the iPhone 7, 7 Plus, and the Apple Watch Series 2 and kind of Series 1, uh, which is very similar to the original Apple Watch, but with a faster processor. Um, what else did they present? The AirPods, which are like wireless. The AirPods, yeah. And the courageous move to remove uh, oh, the yeah. headphone jack. Uh, honestly, I found this really interesting to follow on Twitter because... Uh, as you reminded me this morning, our very first topic that we ever had on the podcast was actually the rumors about the removal. So we've basically, so we as part of the um, well-informed tech scene have known about that removal for almost a year now at this point. And for a lot of people, it still came as a shock. So uh, not surprising. I mean, you, normal people won't follow John Gruber's Twitter account as closely. Yeah. I actually don't follow him, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, hear about this so uh, for, for us it wasn't really um, a, a big deal I guess because we had the chance to c- 
come to peace with that decision, that product decision. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you because at the time when I brought up the topic, when it was only a rumor, you were not very keen on speculating. But uh, I think both of us have been using Bluetooth headphones for a while, yeah. right? What do you think? I, is this something that you would, if you were an iPhone user, would you would this make you think twice about buying the product? Would it not? You think is a a good step, a necessary step? Um. Uh, I don't know. Um, one observation is that it's not very clear that this was a planted leak to <laughs> soften the blow that they would get after after the event just a little. Um, and to your you think it was or it wasn't? Uh, it was. It clearly yeah, was. Totally. Yeah. Um, but your question, I'm I'm not entirely sure. I, I still have a shed load of of headphones that use the 3.5 millimeter headphone jack and not being able to use them only when carrying around that not particularly pretty adapter is a bit annoying but yeah as you say i, I normally use bluetooth headphones these days but just two days ago it happened to me for the first time that i actually ran out of battery and i just always carry <laughs> um backup normal wired headphone yeah a pair of headphones with me and then fell back to them yeah so yeah so one of the things for people still wanted to use regular headphones they will need to carry that little dongle around and it's a bit more annoying and it's a bit uglier because most cables are usually black and this thing will only come in white so it's going to stand out a little bit so uh, something i didn't hear was uh, are they going to include this with the iphone and do you have to buy it separately it's in the box okay yeah uh, and another thing that i think it wasn't mentioned is that in order to do this such a simple dongle they must have rewired some of the pins in lightning to be able to do analog pass through because otherwise the dongle would have had to include the digital to analog converter because the original lightning spec didn't include uh, analog pass so that means it would have had to come with some sort of digital process in them yeah making it bigger yeah exactly so they must have there was also there were rumors that they were rewiring some of the pins and because it's proprietary they don't have any and i also presume this is going to make it a lot cheaper to produce which you probably won't see because it's still going to be sold at like 20 no nine nine dollars nine dollars yeah wow that must be the cheapest item in the apple store then at that point right yeah Uh, together with the magsafe the magsafe too all the other way around uh right one of these yeah you, you've <laughs> got one right here yeah so and the other thing i'm not gonna get in too much into the new cameras and faster processor actually the big little arm architecture that's a an interesting thing i didn't know much about i think i missed that one i had to go okay to so the the new a10 fusion processor processor contains uh it sports four cores two of them are like high power 50 percent faster than last year blah, blah, blah. yeah and the other two are like high efficient low powered cores you know for like more regular tasks that will allow to um yeah use less battery and uh, that's interesting and apparently when they announced it many people on my twitter feed started saying oh they are going big dot little and then i googled it and apparently this is an arm architecture released I don't know how long ago. I need to do some more research, but I think it's interesting like having combined. Okay. I actually thought that most processors would work like this, but I don't really want to 
say too much about this because I have not researched that at all. Yeah, let's have that yeah. as maybe some follow-up for some other time. And finally, my last thought is about this uh, wireless chip they've included for the... Uh, W1? The W1. Uh, they didn't say much, but at the end of the day, it is going to be using Bluetooth, uh, which I so understand... So they haven't mentioned Bluetooth once, have they? Yeah, I understand why, because Bluetooth doesn't have a very... It's got this stigma of being uh, flaky and not well, rightfully and so. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess we'll n- we'll get to know more about this soon about what W1 exactly does. I don't know if it's a different radio. I don't know. Anyway, I think that's enough about that. Yeah, I'm just sure one more one more thing. Sorry about that. No, uh, that's fine. Uh, so everything got 50% faster apart from the max, right? So there was absolutely no mention, no, of, no mention of max. Uh, apart, that, apart from the AirPods working on max, which is what gave away that they work over Bluetooth. Yeah, so what do you think? Will there be a separate event where they yeah. release Sierra and then a bunch of updated MacBooks or will they just let us in, sit in the dark for another I think year? there will be a small event to, to present it because a press brief... Like a small press brief or some like uh, press, what do you call it? Press notes? No, uh, what do you call it? No idea. Anyway, um, I don't know. We'll see. And um, Okay, so I wanted to ask you about a story because you are a really smart man and just sold all your Apple stuff ahead of the event. So you sold your Apple Watch and your, what was it, 6 plus? 6S. 6S. <laughs> so you got a nice... Um, well, a, a reasonable price for it. And then you used your 5X and went to France with it. So well, yeah. what happened there? Oh, man, what, what an adventure. Um, so, yeah, so like you just said, I sold my Apple devices, my, my iPhone and my Apple Watch um, before the event to get yeah, some kind of a nice nice price for, price for them. And I was using my my Nexus 5X, which I was really happy with. Um, I was enjoying the Android Live. I even bought myself uh, an Android Wear watch just to to see the the other side of the fence. So I got on the plane. I was gonna uh, I was going to France for uh, the birthday of a friend, and as soon as I got on the plane, uh, I was listening to a podcast, and the the phone just shut down automatically. At the beginning, I thought. It was maybe a run out of battery or one of these things that the phone thinks got charged, but it doesn't, uh, it gets a bit confused. So it regularly shut down, so you saw the pow- powering off box there? No, no, no. It, was, it was in my pocket. I was listening to a podcast and it just suddenly stopped. Oh, okay. So I took it out of my pocket, I checked it and it was just turned off. Right. Uh, and this happened with my iPhone a few times that having like 50% or more battery, it would just shut down and think, it ran out of battery. I thought it was exactly the same in this case, but it wasn't. So the first time I tried to turn it on, I got this really disconcerting screen saying, literally, your phone is corrupt. It cannot be trusted. For a second, I thought I was holding a Spanish politician in my hands, but uh, (laughs) then I came back to reality and maybe because I've recently updated upgraded to Nougat, uh, Android Nougat. I thought maybe it was something to do with that. Um, anyway, apparently this is uh, a hardware failure. Now I'm dealing with LG uh, customer support, which is terrible, by the way. I uh, haven't got a response from them yet. 
anyway but the story quick the, the part of so, sorry, sorry quick question there so you said that this is because of nougat you've probably googled that that kind of stuff haven't they just introduced that feature to verify uh the uh, well, i don't know integrity yep. of the phone without release yeah and this looks like it's failing at checking that integrity right. system integrity so i i would think that with the previous release even though your phone would have been corrupted equally corrupted it probably would have still booted and then you would have some random failure instead. yeah well. yeah, yeah. I, that sounds about right yeah so the part of the adventure was when i arrived in in france and i didn't have my friend's phone number uh, i didn't have the address or the place where i had to go i didn't have a sat nav i didn't have any of my uh, car, rent, car rental confirmations i had nothing basically I had fallen in, in, into trusting too much my device for everything, and it was it was challenging. I don't speak my, much French, <laughs> um, as you can imagine, uh, but somehow I got by. It was, um, like I said, a challenging experience and rewarding in a way to be <laughs> able to get by, asking people for for help. You can see people are still. People trusted me. There was this lady that even handed her phone to me just to try to Google what the oh. yeah. Um, to be fair, I helped her with um, with um, roaming, and then she kind of trusted me. Was that in Paris or somewhere outside of? Say again. Was that in Paris or in? No, city? this was in uh, north of in Brittany, north of France. It oh, was yeah. a very small airport. Right. Uh, also, I found out that trying to find a public telephone uh, phone box is <laughs> really difficult, right. especially in France. Yeah, I get the feeling that people in, in Paris are way more suspicious, like yeah. here in London. <laughs> and the the other thing is, we we are in this times so or this era where everyone is recommended to use password managers, two FA, uh, and this kind of stuff. And this made my life really difficult. I didn't know any of my passwords. Uh, even if I knew them, I couldn't log in because I couldn't access the SMS codes. Right, um, yeah. So I don't know. It's made me kind of reconsider how I'm going to travel from now on. I think you've got some... You, you've been a bit paranoid about this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you confirmed my paranoia there. Yeah. So thank <laughs> thanks for that. Because I always travel with at least two mobile devices yeah. so i can switch them out if something like this happens but you said sms and i think it could be even worse because uh if you just used for example the google authenticator yep. then everything is gone yep. it saves the totp tokens on the device and as soon as you can't access them anymore you and that is one of the reasons that anytime i can choose between an authenticator app or sms i i pick sms because it's yeah. kind of like like you said even if you if your phone dies, you can always move to put your same. Yeah, same even though most phone. of them um, allow you to use SMS as a backup mechanism for that reason. But yeah. Yeah. So anyway, from now on, I think I'm going to either f travel with the second phone or just definitely print out some phone numbers, addresses and directions to, to places because it's really silly. Yeah. To I may actually not get any of those custom updates to Nougat for my a Nexus 5 in that case, <laughs> because so far it's been proven to be almost indestructible. Yep. Yeah, you should keep this one. as my backup phone. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's about it, my, my adventure in France. Right. 
Okay, so um, I think you wanted to talk about some type-level web services, right? Yeah, so I had another weekend project um, to distract myself. And uh, that, so I, I, I talked before about the bot I was working on. And yep. for that, I needed some uh, images that I wanted to generate dynamically. And I started writing this in pure script with um, a wrapper around Node Express. I got started and basically got it working. But then I was like, ah, this is so annoying. I mean, e even though you get just so much more type safety just by using pure script than you would if you had done it just in JavaScript, I still felt like ah, there, there isn't enough because I'm kind of so used to the Haskell level of expressiveness there. And um, so what, what, you, what you get when you use PureScript expresses when you write your handlers, for example, you have an index page and want to write hello world and on a get response, you just have a handler object that you return and that's just a, a monad transformer stack. So a bunch of stuff in there. You can basically do everything because you also want to be able to do IO. Most of the APIs will do some sort of database work. So it's pretty much not lim it's unlimited what you can do in that context. And I really like how other frameworks restrict your abilities that you have in that context. So I rewrote this in Haskell again, and there's a really, really nice library or basically set of libraries called Servant. And um, they allow you to express a lot, of th a lot of the things through the type level. So you can just say, here's a handler, and I want to respond to a GET request with a JSON object that contains the serialized form of this piece of data. Or you can say, I'm expecting a POST request containing these parameters as the body, and only then I will call this particular handler. And so I wrote one. Um, so my service now renders some images that are dynamically generated in SVG and also um, converts them to PNGs. If you do this, and everything is basically expressed on the type level, and it's so little code I had to write to do this, it was uh, sounds good. Really what kind that. of web container or app container do you need for to run this? Nothing. Yeah. It just fine. yeah, it's just a binary that listens on an HTTP port. Um, for Haskell, the most common, I don't even know how, how you would call this. Maybe runtime is warp. So if you've used Python before, that's I think equivalent to what they have there with with whiskey or WSIG I. Okay. Yeah, but that was good fun. Um, it's all on, on GitHub. I can um, add the link to the show notes if anyone's interested in checking that out. Cool. Sounds interesting. I'm sure people will find it find it useful. Okay, so I think that's about for for the warm-up. So, Pasi, I think you've got some, some personal news for us. Yeah, I've got some sad news. Um, this is my last week here at Twitter, and because we record this right now uh, in a meeting room here, this may have some impact on the podcast. We obviously don't intend to to stop recording, but since there will be a lot of change for, for me personally in the next couple of weeks, we may miss a few episodes again, but I'm sure we will be back on track at some yeah. point. We may not be able to record in the same room, which is quite nice, but um, there are many systems and mechanisms to record remotely. Uh, well, so I'll, I'll still be in London, so maybe we can do something in, in the evening. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, yeah, my side to say that is a big of a shame, and it's been a pleasure to work with you for quite a long time. Likewise, like man. Been over over three years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll be leaving four days short of my third anniversary here. Yeah, and you were already here when I when I started. So yeah, almost three years. Yeah, 
anyway good luck with with what comes next um, thank you um, yeah so let's move on to more app workflow discussion yes okay so we left off last time on the topic of code review and um i wanted to dig into this just a bit more i think code review in general could be its own entire show but i wanted to talk about how to efficiently review code and just as a quick side note i think last time was still a bit rambly i don't know if we all do much better this time but so we've actually written down some things that we want to talk about this time so yeah. i hope there won't be just as much jumping back and forth and i think i should apologize because it was uh mostly my fault we're both learning here um, yeah <laughs> i didn't have a very clear structure in my head of what we wanted to cover and i was jumping from one thing to another but pass has done a great job of putting an outline together that hopefully we can we can follow so yeah uh, we touched many many things last uh, in the last episode we're gonna go deeper in some of the things that people have asked us about um uh, one of the things uh, on the m i think most we've been asked about is code reviews i think is a, a big topic and hopefully we can help with some tips and yeah so i i think one big question is how do you, you actually efficiently review code so we basically said yeah you get a review then there are all those plus one plus two actions that you can take on it and well later we'll get to release management and everything that's involved but from getting a code review to actually deciding on whether it's a good or uh, a good patch or one that needs improvement that's um, not an easy task i think one the first thing um there's not much discussion about this is that one should make the patches more to make them easily reviewable um there's this i added this tweet uh, by the i am developer account it says things like um code reviews 10 lines 10 issues like 4,000 lines like this is fine <laughs> it looks fine uh which basically means like the more the more you have to review and the more the reviewer needs to think about the less likely it is that it will do a good job and and focus on the on the important things right yes and there have actually been studies on this topic like on the effectiveness of code review um i found something published by ibm i'll include that in the show notes as well and um, the data there showed that code reviews are basically fine up to 200 lines and they they don't I, i'm not sure if they even mentioned the programming language but lines of code are always lines of code are always a bit of a tricky topic but it's it's to to give you a guideline not as a um, hard rule so like up to 200 lines it's fine after that it takes already a really big hit in the effectiveness and they um analyze this by look by having issues in the code and seeing how many people would identify them um based on how, how big the yeah. review is and so at 200 it takes a big hit and then above 400 uh it almost goes to zero so the effectiveness and uh, the number of issues people would find so you basically become blind at some point when the review goes too big yeah and similar to the number of lines is the number of areas touched or definitely yeah, yeah. or just files touched um files depend, touched, depending yeah. on the tool you use for garrett you actually have to skip from from file to file so I've, I've seen some hundred lines of code changes which isn't too much in general but if they touch 25 files yeah then this is still a lot of mental overhead yeah and we're not talking about touching files like when you change the signature of a method that you can see as you as you browse right, through yep. the files you can see it's just changing the, the signature 
we're talking about functionality and big changes on many files. The more files you change, the more difficult, the more back and forth yep. there is, and the more easy to lose the context or skip through things because you think, oh, I've got 20 more files to, to get through. Yeah, it's an example there. So you could, for example, um, add a new listener yep. that is called in various places. And on Android, for example, yep. you could have some lifecycle listener that dispatches events. And if you need to include this in three base classes it's probably relatively simple but if this happens on a lower level and you have to add this to 50 ones it's really difficult just by looking at the code review to say oh yeah you've definitely covered them all or no actually you've missed two of them yeah yeah exactly um i think you put here in the in the notes that garrett tries to do a bit of a, a bit of natural selection by adding uh, color codes to the reviews so smaller reviews are green and will be more likely to be reviewed so we definitely want to encourage this and yeah i'm not sure if this is something we added or if this is a feature that yeah. garrett has but i think it's it's quite useful it's uh, i mean I, I always have one or two red patches in my in my inbox sometimes mm -hmm. they are just unavoidable but it, it just encourages smaller reviews j just by having this color coding in there and i think that's a good idea yeah the only time I don't like that is when it looks super red and it is because you actually removed 6,000 lines. It should be, I don't know, the best possible color ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we, we did something interesting here. So uh, I sent a goodbye email around and I collected some stats of the work that I've done here over the past three yeah. years, including the number of lines of code that I've added and removed. And you ran the same script and you came up with the incredible result of having removed more lines of code than you've added in, in the iOS code base. So yeah. Well done, Ramon. By the way, I must say, and it's not because Pascal is here in front of me, but I've seen many goodbye emails, but Passis was by far the best. So <laughs> it was <laughs> epic. He <laughs> ran so many stats on meeting duration. What else did he do? Uh, meeting duration. Lines uh, of code. Uh, a histo yeah, histogram of the meeting durations. With deviations, didn't you? Did you add yeah, I also had a graph of... Um, th that was quite interesting. So I just had a graph over the three years that I've been with the company, just average meeting times uh, with a 14-day rolling window. And you could see some cyclical effects there, which normally... I, if I had had more time, I would have tried to correlate this with projects that I worked on because I think you probably have more meetings right at the start of a project when yep. you try to figure everything out and then when it gets to the implementation phase you go heads down you don't need that many anymore and it was really interesting to see yeah, yeah um so something that's also really important to mention here when we talk about small patches is that we basically have the garrett mindset here that we use and garrett treats commits as patch sets and that is in a quite a stark contrast to how GitHub handles those things where you have pull requests and you can bundle multiple commits into a single pull yeah. request. So the pull, the pull request will keep track of the branch and as you push more uh, commits to that branch, it will get added to the to the pull request. Exactly. Not, is there any way to avoid that? Or you should just create a different branch if you want to keep uh, working on that branch? Yeah, this is one of m my biggest issues with GitHub. I worked on a project here with uh, our colleague Dahi uh, on GitHub, it was a Rust project. And there we had a lot of patches that we had independent pull requests for, but that 
were still reliant on each other. Yeah. And there's no good way on GitHub to chain them. So you can only really say, here, this one depends on this one. Please make sure to merge this one before. And you always have the noise of the underlying patches in the pull request that yeah. sit on top of it. So that's a lot easier to, to do on Garrett because you um, automatically chain them by just just using the the normal git workflow so if you have a parent that isn't in master yet yeah. it will link to the previous one and will make sure that this one is merged before the new one goes in do you think you guys are yeah no i was gonna say whether you guys are victims of the garrett workflow and you you're trying to apply the same workflow to github but i don't I think, think so because dahi in particular doesn't even work with garrett we have some some different tools that we use here internally yeah. at twitter and he's basically used to uh, review board and now fabricator which yeah. use a different model yeah on the other hand in in yak yak there's um the open source hangouts clients i talked about i was working on on a feature and i needed to make some modifications i think if you rebase your branch and you push again i think the and please correct correct me if i'm wrong the brand the, the pull request will get updated with the rebase yep. commit you send, right? Yeah, but what's also a bit annoying on, on GitHub, and this might be a bit off topic, but if you force push to a branch, it yep. will update your pull request, but it will erase basically every indication of your previous work. So if you address some bugs or address oh. some comments that you have in, in your code, they will say, yeah, this has been addressed or this is no longer relevant and yep. collapse them, but you won't actually see the previous commit that you yep. have. So. Uh, in Garrett, it will always keep track of all the iterations that you've gone through. can be a bit embarrassing at, at times, but <laughs> um, no, it, it, I think it's better because you can see how a patch evolved over time. Yeah. Okay, so we wanted to talk about um, how to break down big chunks of work. Yeah, so this is basically, this has basically now covered how to review patches yeah. by, um, and we said keep them small, but we didn't really say how we achieve that and i i often work on big features and they will lead to a lot of code there's there's no way around this so we can't just say implement this entirely new live timeline within 100 lines of code so yeah. it's easily re reviewable but it will probably still be a couple thousand at the end so but how do you create patches that others can actually easily review do you have a good way of dealing with that kind of stuff before i share my my approach here um okay so what i usually do is um i try to break down stories i, I think i've i've got pretty good at knowing how much how big the patches yeah how large the patches would be before I start working on them, obviously we always you always have the typical patch that is a kind of worms, and as you start working on it, it keeps growing and growing and growing. And then in that case, I need to apply some kind of redu reduction techniques or, or break them down. But usually, I kind of know what will be a good size patch. Um, Something I do to keep track of my work is I use this uh, Git tool called uh, Source Tree. I think I recommended it here in the past, and within the team, I always say that one of the first things is a UI for Git. And uh, what this allows me is to do continuous review of my own patch. So I'm constantly, as I modify the code, every now and then I always go back to Source Tree and check what I've modified. Uh, 
I don't know, for me, it's much easier to visually uh, identify what I'm changing and what could be a problem. So that having said that, I don't think I have a very good strategy on how to break them down. I'm sure you've got some more tips here, right? Well, I don't know if it's, you know, it's certainly not the best approach, but it works for me reasonably well. So I, I'm not talking about the kind of story where I don't really see the bottom of it yep. straight away. So it could be implement this really obscure video feature, which may already exist in the code base somewhere, or you have to implement it all by yourself. And that's <laughs> difficult to say when you start. So I normally just start and crack on until I fully understand the problem. I often end up with some really gnarly code in the beginning and then try to refactor it over time but as soon as i hit this milestone where i have something running i try to commit so i start off with a new branch and that's oh. just a local branch for myself so i can keep track of that stuff and commit things because then afterwards when i want to make it look a bit nicer and refactor things i may accidentally break stuff and <laughs> don't know how to get back from there um and also this kind of stuff then will touch various areas across the code base and that's probably again not the best way to structure your patches because you want to keep them focused in one area maybe add new functionality first then have a different patch that actually uses them in a different part of the code yeah. i was going to say that as, as you were saying it i was i was thinking actually i do that often like you start working on something and you think this other piece of code you're going to reuse already supports something but then you realize it doesn't you need to refactor something or fix some hidden bugs yeah. And I usually separate that out. Yeah. I've tried before to build this this one side first, so I could just submit this for review and then write the implementation. But more often than not, I would find myself then having to change that component that I use again, and that would make the follow-up patch a bit annoying to, to deal with. Or I would say in the formal review then, oh yeah, um, so the, the comment that you have here, this is actually going to be addressed in the follow-up. So please ignore that. That's, that's, always that's unhelpful yeah. in patches. So I try to get everything working first, make sure everything is nice. Yeah. I've got my tests down and, yeah. and whatnot. And then I try to break it down. Yeah, exactly. But this process, trying to figure out how to do this efficiently is still something I don't think I found the best solution yet. Yeah. So depending on the size of the patch, so rule of thumb, basically, if it's more than three patches, I will use a tool called st stacked git or stgit. Yep. Um, otherwise, I'll just fall back to using git rebase uh, in the interactive mode. And both tools basically let you do the same. You can um, go back in your history, amend certain commits that you have, fix them, move code around. Stacked git is pretty nice because it um, allows you to do pretty much all the actions that git rebase in interactive mode allows you to do, but with fewer commands so what you can do there for example is you have a pop and push actions it's just stgit pop and push and it will either drop a patch from your current head or put it back on and will automatically do the rebasing uh, so update your, your yep. patches that you've pushed on top again and that is particularly helpful if you just see this piece of code that i've added here in the top level commit should actually be two commits before because it uh, addresses the underlying component and not the implementation. So if you just want to move patch around, uh, code around, or uh, fix a commit that is further down, so you, if you push out four patches and you get some feedback on the first one and stuff you should have done differently and you want to change that, this can be um, quite painful if you have a long chain of patches and uh, for addressing those fe that feedback and pushing it back up. 
that has been super helpful. Hmm. I think those are, those are like useful tips. Um, so I think so far we've been covering how to effectively submit a patch or a pull request. Uh, I would like us to go to the other side and and talk about how we review the code, how we approach um, the code. And I'm going to start by, I wouldn't call it a systematic approach, I've got, uh, but I think of it as a series of steps. So the first thing I do when I, when I need to review a patch is obviously um, make sure that the architectural decisions make sense. Um, is this patch create a new observer? Is it creating a new listener? Is it creating a new singleton? Uh, does it make sense? Is there something that already does this? That's one of the first things that I always uh, think of or, or double check. We've got a very large code base and there are thousands of utilities and uh, little classes that do things that are duplicated, unfortunately, and people sometimes tend to think they don't exist and rewrite them. So one of my most usu uh, usual initial comments is, oh, this is not needed. If this problem doesn't exist, I just, as I said, make sure that the architectural decisions make sense. If all, all of that checks out, I usually focus on the class level architecture. Um, is this subclass in the right class? Is this reusing, is it using comp composition what it should instead of subclassing? Is it, you know, typical class level architectural decisions? And then once that checks out as well, I usually focus on the safety of the methods, whether it's things are threat safe, uh, whether it's going to be blocking, non-blocking. Um, what else could could be interesting to check out there? Whether the algorithms um, are safe, are going to work on edge cases, etc. And then finally, uh, after all those things uh, check out, I focus get a bit more nip nitpicky. Uh, can this code be simplified? I focus on names. Do the names read properly? Uh, are they understandable? If there are comments, you know, do I understand what this comment say? I don't just think, oh, this is okay because there are some comments here. Um, and yeah, finally, I focus on very nitpicky things like. Um, grammar, um, some of things like that. Do you use any systematic similar approach to these things or, or not? That's, that sounds really good to me. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't think I, I have a clear system. What I normally do when I get a patch is I first give it a really quick sc first scan. So it looks through it, get a feeling for the shape of the code. Uh, same as you see if there's something completely extraneous to it yep. that should be part of a separate patch probably would be one of my first comments like can we make this smaller can we split this up here yeah and um then i normally start by looking at the tests depending on which part of the code it is the tests are more or less useful for getting a feeling for what what they're touching yeah um but oftentimes they can be a really good entry point because they just show what has actually changed and what the behavior of the new code or yeah. the, the changes to it are and yeah, then I'll go through it as you look for some red flags. Could we have used yeah. composition here? Are you using something like a list just for for lookup where you should be using a set? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I think you touched it very briefly there, but I I didn't say it in during my explanation. I focus a lot um, at the very beginning during the architectural part in the interfaces. Do they make sense? Uh, are they extensible? Are they general or concrete enough? Yeah. Um, Even though I got to say, in an idea world, the architectural questions shouldn't really come up at the code review stage. So I know not after the code has been written, but before. But yeah, it, every now and then you will definitely yeah. find something that's questionable. Yeah, I wish we had more discussions before the hands-on part about I'm gonna approach it this way and. Fortunately, um, we don't as much as we should. We could save some time as well. Yeah, I, uh, I guess it depends. So I've definitely written my fair share of design docs for larger features that line out exactly that kind of stuff. And mm. then if you need feedback, you can send it around to internal review groups here, which are normally optional, unless it's a super critical feature. Backend yeah. services do this with a bit more vigor than, than we on, on the front-end side of things. But yeah, if you're unsure if this is the right design or if you could reuse something that you probably didn't even know was there, uh, then you can ask for help and we'll get it fairly quickly. Yeah. And as a final step of the review, I always like to do some manual testing and verify that what I'm uh, accepting or plus doing, it actually works. Yes, I'll do the same. And if there are any integration tests, I will make sure to run them manually because that is something we currently don't do on the pre-merge yeah. step. Yeah, we. I always press the button of verifying to run some of those. Uh, you have, yeah, at the moment, we have to do it manually beforehand or it gets done yeah. automatically afterwards. Well, and sometimes I, <laughs> if there's any date-related code, I will also make sure to run them locally because the <laughs> CI service that we have sit in the same time zone as most contributors from uh, San Francisco yeah. that we have. And every now and then people forget about time zones and awareness for their tests and they will just fail if you try to run, run them from here. In yeah. The good UTC plus zero or plus one time zone. That's an interesting one, yeah. Okay, so do you want to add anything else for code reviews or shall we? Well, yeah, as I said, I think we could cover this in an entire show there are so many different angles to this but i think that should suffice for for this here yeah. okay so we are already 40 something minutes in and the next topic that we wanted to cover would be release management and exceptions and metrics and everything there's nothing really that uh we can that we can cover in its entirety within the next 20 minutes or so so i would suggest we take a break here and come back with release management in the next episode. Yep, sounds sounds about right there. We've got quite a lot of things to say about that one as well. So, um, cool. Do you want to move on to picks? Yes, let's do it. I think we have a couple of podcasts this week uh, yep, to start I, with. I, I probably won't stop recommending podcasts here. Um, yeah. there, there will be always one unless we do it on a release podcasts on a daily basis ourselves so one uh, fairly new podcast that i've uh, been really enjoying is the magic reader read along and i've mentioned that at twitter as well um it's hosted by by two guys and um i think they recorded remotely via zencaster they don't seem to do any editing on, on purpose to be able to continue doing it on, on such a regular cadence and they talk a lot about functional programming and at least to me from a super relatable position they just try to make their code better by by using functional programming not just to get whatever the the current hot thing in category theory is um but 
yeah trying to improve how, how they work and i've particularly enjoyed the most recent episode at the time of the recording here which was mm. entitled there's no no royal roads to the co-monad <laughs> what's the entry level required to actually enjoy it um it's it's difficult to say it feels like it's they are above my level but i still get a lot out of it okay <laughs> how they deal with it but so on that particular episode they talked about how to get an intuition for the more complex and um, less often used abstractions like co-monads and how to get there and i found this well as i said just super relatable i've been in the same position like how do i get a full understanding of this that um when i get into a piece of code i look at it and think oh wow this is actually a place where i would want to use a co-monad and uh, extract from it and yeah I'm not there yet, but it's been super interesting. They also talk a lot about Elm and PureScript, which are two languages I really enjoy dabbling with. So, yeah, please check it out. Cool. I would say I I will give it a go, but I don't think I've got the level yet. So <laughs> maybe some other time. Cool. So now my pick is, uh, one of my picks is another podcast. It's called Rocket FM. I'm a uh, fan as well. You fan, yeah. So this is, I think, I actually started listening to it because you recommended an episode or something. Yeah, I keep sharing little snippets in our DM group that we have when they talk about Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it is great. So this podcast is uh, hosted by three ladies. Uh, they are super techy and super knowledgeable about um, mainly about. I would say, would you compare it to ATP a little bit? Yeah, I think uh, so. But I think I, I like that they one of the um, the hosts uh, works at Polygon. Uh, so they cover video games much more than in ATP, which I really enjoy. And uh, they are also, I think they are much more critical with everything in general. ATP are, are a bit Apple-focused. Here they crit critique or critique? I don't know what the word is. Uh, <laughs> basically, but they say things as they see them, and I really enjoy that. And they cover a very uh, varied uh, set of topics. I recommend it. Um, it's great. I'm really enjoying it. I've only listened to like four or five episodes, but it's great. Right. Then there's a paper I want to recommend and that cool. won't come as a surprise because it covers a servant. They've published how they actually do all the type level magic they do behind the scenes and end up with this not only super powerful, but also easy to use API because you will see, especially in Haskell, a lot of stuff that is just incredibly intimidating. If you open up the, the page for Lens, for example, a pretty popular um, package. It doesn't do much type level magic, but just if you look at the signatures, you won't have any idea what it's doing. And for Servant, uh, you don't even have to read the docs, which are actually quite expensive and, and really good, but you can just follow along the types and get the right compiler errors and fix them and you will get along very well. But yeah, the um, the, the paper that they've published uh, lines out how to generally approach that, that kind of problem and it was a really good read. Cool. Will you add a link to it? In the, um, I shall. Cool. So just to finish the, the picks, I just wanted to share that I've been playing a game called Inside. It's by the creators of uh, Limbo and... I would totally recommend it to people that want to play like a standalone experience. It's I think three hours, beginning to end. Um, quite scary uh, at times, but not the kind of scare jump scary. Uh, the atmosphere is scary and the visuals are amazing. Uh, very enjoyable. Um, stopped playing No Man's Sky, so that was <laughs> the last game. The last game I 
I played. Um, did, with did you play it on the PS4? Or? On the PS4, yeah. yeah. It was initially released only for uh, Xbox and Windows, but they, right. uh, the exclusivity ended and it's out for PS4 now. Yeah, I kind of missed the announcement that it was available on PS4. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm going to check it out too. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you will enjoy it. And I think with this, uh, we reached the end of episode 8 of Strictly Untyped. Yeah, where can people find you, Roman, on the internet? As always, I haven't changed my handle, at Monchote, M-O-N-C-H-O-T-E. And you, Passy? I'm Passy, that's at P-A-S-S-Y. You can also leave us a review, that would be much appreciated in all the usual places. Yep. And yeah, also, as always, you can find us on at Strictly Untyped on Twitter, and we are more than happy to reply, take requests on topics or answer questions for the next episodes cool that's all thanks everyone for listening see you next time and before you before you stop I've got a quick idea here Um, so uh, I'm pretty sure we can't really cover the Apple cock up that they had with uh, Twitter usage (laughs) but um, something I found really interesting was how they used the null casted tweets to Give pe- send people a reminder for the event. So yeah. that what they did was you could retweet a tweet and uh, then they would set up a reminder and at mention you when the event started so you wouldn't miss it. I really like this idea and I was wondering, uh, so before that I didn't even had had an idea that we had a public API for using nullcaster tweets. For those who don't know, those are tweets that follow some special fan art rules and I don't really know them, what they mean, but... They basically, they basically don't go to your profile. They, they don't go to your profile. They don't go into the home timeline of people who follow you. Um, they do, however, show up in your no- notifications and if you retweet them, they will just follow the retweet fan art rules from your account so everyone else will see them yeah this is mostly used for promoted tweets you exactly. can create yeah. like phantom tweets that are only shown in certain uh circumstances yeah you know, and like you can even targeting. do a b testing with them so you don't have your entire profile full of um the different experimental tweets that you have and i was thinking if there is a public api um that'd be actually a pretty cool thing to build a podcast reminder thing for it so would. we could have something if you retweet a certain special tweet on, st- um, on Strictly Untyped, we could send mm-hmm. you a reminder or just the tweet, including a SoundCloud link to the next episode when it's when it's out. That'd yeah. be pretty cool. That'd be good. Unfortunately, and please keep in mind, I've got no idea of what I'm about to say. I'm just <laughs> speculating. I think this is all through the ads. Uh, it is, yeah. And it would probably cost money to the advertiser. So I don't think... I don't know. I, I still have some credit left. I might be able <laughs> to use that. Yeah, but I, I want I want to look into that. That sounds like a pretty neat little yeah. weekend yeah. project. Yeah. Cool. See you, Passy. I'll See miss you. you. I'll miss you too.